When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest hashtag no filter edition. It's Wednesday, August 30th. 2017. On today's show, the indie movie Ingrid Goes West. It's a chilling social media satire starring Aubrey Plaza as the sadly demented fan of an Instagram star who is played by Elizabeth Olsen. And then Rick and Morty is a wild and kooky cartoon jaunt on the Cartoon Network. It's part of the Adult Swim franchise, and my daughter loves it for what it's worth. And finally, Slate's own Aisha Harris goes on an ethnographic exploration of, yes, it's true, Dolly Parton's Dixie Stampede a themed restaurant. Um, we're joined by Isaac Butler. Isaac, when I think of themed restaurants, I, I don't think of you. No. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Your first question is always so disarming, Stephen. <laughs> um, it's the banter ball that can't be hit back. I know. It's so specialty. good. It's like it's just like, that was like a 134 <laughs> mile per hour ace. Can we try that again? No, this <laughs> ball stays. This all stays. That's great. Rain Rainforest Cafe, buddy, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, No, the last theme restaurant I was at was like a Harry, Henry VIII themed thing in Virginia Beach, Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> when I was 12 years old. And uh, See, I knew a, this would be good. Yeah, a friend of my older sister's played like the court jester, and I think I ate a turkey leg. I love it. Isaac Butler, I should say, in addition to being a major, major fop friend of the program, is a writer and slate contributor and co-author of The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America, which I'm excited to say you can now pre-order on Amazon. He co-authored it with Dan Coyce. No idea who that guy is. Um... And we're joined by Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey there, Stephen. Should I throw a 130-mile-per-hour fastball at you? <laughs> <laughs> sure, flatten me out. That was your 130-mile-per-hour fastball. <laughs> I've, got <laughs> I've got nothing, but I am excited to talk about these topics. Let's uh, let's plunge in. All right. Well, Ingrid Goes West, uh, it was a darling at the uh, Sundance Film Festival. It stars Aubrey plaza as ingrid a young and very depressed woman whose life lights up only vicariously especially when she feels included uh in something that's happening within the glow of social media she becomes obsessed with a los angeles lifestyle guru and moves single white female style to los angeles to befriend her the movie also stars and this is a shout out that has to happen right up top o'shea jackson he's terrific as her landlord and possible love interest the movie was co-written and directed by matt spicer let's uh let's listen to a clip What's your biggest emotional wound? What? It's our question of the day. Oh. <laughs> Mine's actually my relationship with my dad. 
<laughs> I'm good, thanks. All right. Well, in that case, welcome to Grateful Kitchen. My name's Eden. How can I nourish you today? You know, I'm actually meeting a friend for lunch here. Have you seen her? Oh, yeah, Taylor Sloan. Yeah, yeah. She comes in all the time. I know. <laughs> she was actually here like an hour ago. Yeah. You said you're meeting her for lunch, or...? God, I must have gotten the time wrong. So stupid. <laughs> Do you remember what she ordered? Uh, Dana, let me start with you. Uh, what'd you make of this movie? Oh, boy, I have so much to say. I'm excited to talk about this movie with you guys. So this movie, to me, okay, it's the, it's, the, it's the director's debut film. So given that, I didn't know that going in, given that he's writing and directing a movie for the first time, it, this is a pretty impressive single, first base single, maybe. But to me, the setup was so much better than the payoff. And I don't want to spoil majorly. We can get into maybe some spoilers later. But I really was excited about this movie for the first 30 or 40 minutes, maybe, in which the situation that you just described is set up, the way social media is satirized. There's a really great montage early on of Taylor Sloan, this, this uh, as you call her, lifestyle guru. Basically, she's a, an Instagram brand influencer or something. That's how she makes a living. So she's this attractive young woman who goes around posing with brands and tagging them in her Instagram posts and making a living off of it. That in itself is fascinating. That such a thing exists is fascinating. Satirizing it is a great idea. The montage of her Instagram posts is hilarious. But I didn't think that this movie... Oh, I thought it spiraled down really hard in the last half. And we can kind of get into the the reasons why. I think one of them has to do with this whole unlikable anti-hero, anti-heroine trope that is just really, really hard to handle, right? I mean, to have someone as hard to take as the Aubrey Plaza character Ingrid in this movie, you've got to have a lot of levels of kind of heart and intelligence and satire going on mm. to keep them from simply being so either so off-putting that you want to stop watching the movie or that the villains and the heroes seem to be indistinguishable from one another. I just felt that the sharpness of the satire sort of disappeared. And although I agree with you that O'Shea Jackson is is great as the landlord who's all, who also becomes Ingrid's love interest, his character makes no sense, no sense at all. Mm -hmm. And he puts up with so much shit from this woman that, to me, I started to lose respect for him as a character and for their relationship. So the ending, which I won't spoil, seemed really bifurcated to me, that it was trying to keep up that almost black mirror level of, you know, anxiety and, and terror about social media and technology and what it's done to our lives and our souls. And also to have some sort of gesture toward a romantic happy ending. And so I didn't get that. Um, yeah. I also, I'm a little bit allergic, I think, to Aubrey Plaza, and I don't quite know why. I mean, she's really good at what she does. And God knows I like a sarcastic, drop-dead, cool female heroine. But I've never liked her in a movie. I know that in Parks and Rec, she was supposed to be all that, and I can see her appeal, but she doesn't really carry this movie for me. There's something inert at the heart of it. Mm, Isaac, what do you what do you think? Uh, I I I think I I both agree with Dana's criticisms and was a little more taken with it. I think there is a specificity to it and to its satire that's really right on, and I think the way that it's like. Um, Grateful Kitchen, which is a satire. There's a real L.A. vegan restaurant called Cafe Gratitude that it's only slightly exaggerated. You get to Grateful Kitchen. The Integratron is a real place where you take these sound wave baths out in Joshua Tree. And so I thought that there was a specificity to it. And there's a lot of like really clever stuff like um, 
O'Shea Jackson's character, who's the ultimate do-gooder, he's Batman, right? And that's why he's such a, a sap. He's positioned as Batman. Uh, because he's writing a Batman script on spec on, and he's obsessed with Batman. Yeah, exactly. Specifically the Joel Schumacher Batman. Exactly. And then Taylor's brother is the Joker and he's dating a woman named Harley, right? So there's like these very clever references seeded throughout it. And I thought this idea of what happens when you commodify everything in your life and then you turn those those things into the images of themselves was really really fascinating. However, I just think it needed to go further in any of its directions as opposed to kind of looping back on itself with the kind of mm. um, Twilight Zone-y, Black mirror but yet kind of happy, like a darkly happy ending, right? Like there's a, right. you know, it, it, it'll surprise no one that, that Taylor's life is not as happy and well put together as it seems on Instagram. And the movie starts exploring that and then immediately veers away from it. Right, exactly. In this kind of weird second plot in the second half of the movie. And if it had just gone further into that, if it had embraced the kind of um, Tom Ripley aspects of Ingrid's mm, character, mm-hmm. I, I, I think it would have been a lot stronger. But I will say, I mean, there's some moments in it that will will stick with me. There's one that's in the trailer where they're singing in the car, where she and Taylor are singing in the in the van and Aubrey Plaza, like the uh, her obsession sort of comes in in that section and then moves mm. away so that they're just two women having fun. And then, you know, like... And, but and, she kind of can't keep her eyes on the road she, because yeah. she's so obsessed yeah. with her, and, her and, idol. And sequences like that were so... I thought impressive and well yes. modulated and put together that I'm really looking forward to what uh, the director oh, does absolutely. next. Absolutely. You know, it's grippingly well directed, if nothing else. I actually thought the performances were terrific uh, through and through. I loved uh, Wyatt Russell, who's terrific as the kind of, you know, adjunct, uh, st- you know, stoogy adjunct husband to this woman's, you know, perfectly curated life. Um, uh, he's great. Uh, I I thought oddly enough this what's the name of the great Nicole Kidman movie uh, satire written by Joyce Maynard with uh, to die for to yeah to die to die for I I thought that was so that was one possible you know it def- definitely hits a fork right it's either gonna it's either gonna humanize or dehumanize this poor woman the problem with the to die for fork is that this is a movie to the extent that you humanize this movie humanize the character and therefore the movie it's a movie about mental illness I mean it she is a deeply sick young woman and the movie's in control of that and understands that um, and I don't think that we're you know 20 years or whatever it is after single white female we're not in the same place as a society about mental illness and utterly demonizing someone who needs help uh, it just isn't acceptable so the 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 sort of the satisfyingly generic direction to go in is deeply insulting to her as, as a person who's sick and needs help. The humanist way kind of undoes the power of the satire of the first half. And so it kind of didn't take the fork. It kind of bounced into the crux of it and off of it, which is why the, the second half of the film doesn't quite work. That said, I really I do want to emphasize it is it is sharply, sharply written for how broad the satire could be. It is very finely observed. And the directing is is confident and totally in control. But am I... I would say it is intermittently un- under control and inter- intermittently well-written. But I completely agree with you, Steve, about whatever that metaphor was about bouncing off the fork. The moment that sympathy towards a woman who's mentally ill and satire of the social media universe that she and her friends are trapped in the, the the way that those two things fail to braid together in the second half or, or last two thirds of the movie is my big criticism. Of yeah. It. And, and to yeah. me, I think the 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 I don't know if this is the solution or whatever, but the the 
to me, the stronger choice, because it sort of tries to have it both ways in the second half, is to Especially instead, with the romance. Yeah, is to instead go fully misanthropic with Elizabeth Olsen's character and her life. It's actually to suck the humanity out of that, I think, as much as it is about mm-hmm. imbuing yep. Ingrid with humanity. Like, there's a there's a thing where, where it's about to look at this phenomenon in society and essentially say, you know, th- there's, there's an illness here as well, not a DSM-5R illness, but an illness here as well. And then it, it just veers away from it. Brilliant, yeah. It also sort of fails to veer down one of the most interesting avenues that could have gone down, which is the economic underpinning of the, the Instagrammer's life, right? Yeah, it plays that lightly, right? It's like you don't know. She says, oh, brands pay me. You know, none of those things are hashtagged as ads, of course, which they're, you know, more ethical people do if they're talking about a brand. Right, she's on not Twitter. Louise Linton. She's yeah. classier than that. Yeah, but she she uh no, but she says, you know, oh, I'm a photographer and then she sort of says that her mm. photography, her art is that brands pay her to talk about their stuff. The husband's art is to paint hashtags on crappy hotel art even though he doesn't even own a smartphone, right? So, you know, I So I, his art in a way is to satirize Instagram influencers, right? Yeah. Which which would have been a great fight for the couple to get into, but they never really quite do. Yeah, there's a weird mm-hmm. way in which the stuff the movie lightly plays, I wish were more foregrounded and some of the foregrounded stuff I wish were in the background. Like we actually get the resolution yeah. of her marriage in an offhand line in the background of the audio mix when the camera isn't even on her husband about what's going, if I remember correctly, about what's going on in their life. And I just wish some of that stuff was actually more to the fore in the second half. Well, also, I think this is a pretty major flaw in the movie is that is that Ice Cube Jr., as I kept on thinking of him, because O'Shea Jackson is Ice Cube's son, and he looks so much like his dad, who he so played in Straight Outta Compton, <laughs> that I just kept thinking, no. is it 1991? Why is Ice Cube on screen? And he has sort of a Anybody, similar warmth. looks so and young, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, so O'Shea Jackson complimenting aside, that character should have gotten fed up with Ingrid. That is an important part of her moral growth, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the very mm-hmm. first interaction they have, she's his tenant. She borrows his truck. This isn't giving away too much. It happens near the beginning. And she keeps it out all night, keeps him from going to a very important job event that he had to go to, returns it damaged, and continues to be his tenant. I mean, forget about a relationship with her. He should have just said, bitch, get out of my house. (laughs) Well, there's an interesting beat. Again, they start to hint at without exploring that she is actually quite adept at um, reshaping herself to be what he wants when she needs something from him in a scene that I won't spoil. Um, And that is another thing that they sort of started to explore and then stopped. The the film has a lot of different irons in the fire, you know, and some of them it just kind of leaves there to melt instead of doing something with them. That, for me, finally, is the issue of the movie, which is that if it's a study of a certain kind of sociopath, then you're fascinated by her and train your eyes on her and watch as her sociopathy plays out in the new context of social media and Instagram, or she's a stand-in for all of us. And the illness, you know, Isaac, as you put it, that we're all suffering from, which is, you know, faced with this choice of being at the center of a curated and highly displayed social media existence or being a vicarious um, and slightly exiled slob uh, on the fringes of quote unquote what is actually happening um, I, you know you know it's it's like kind of it, it, that that was a tough choice that it tried to make both ways and that's where the movie went a little bit muddled that said I want to conclude the segment by going around the table because I say definitely seek this movie out. Um, especially as a hugely accomplished first effort from the director. Uh, Do the panelists agree? 
I think if we're doing the, is it sound opinions where they have the buy it, stream it, trash it? That's their three-part rating scale. I'm stream it. Yeah, I'm stream it too. I'm stream, stream the first hour of it with some good snacks on hand. And if you get really disillusioned, it's, it's fine. You got the best out of it already. Yeah. All right. Well, the movie is Ingrid Goes West. We would love to hear what you think about it at facebook.com slash culturefest. And it stars Elizabeth Olsen and uh, Aubrey Plaza. And as we all pointed out, O'Shea Jackson is wonderful in a supporting role. All right, moving on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about business, uh, of which we always have some, Dana, don't we? What do, what do we have this week? Indeed, we do. Our first piece of business is a very exciting one. As you all know, if you've been listening recently to the show, we are going to Toronto in September to the Toronto Film Festival to do a live show at the Toronto Reference Library. So the tickets went on sale last week, or rather went on get them free time on a given day last week, and they all sold out in 90 minutes, which is incredible. And we're very flattered. So thanks to everyone who got a free ticket to the show. But if you missed it, there is still one way to do the show, which is to get a ticket to the cocktail after party at a nearby location. There are about 30 of those left, and that ticket will also, of course, get you into the live podcast. So if you want to try to go for one of those cocktail after party tickets for the live Toronto show on September 13th at 7 p.m. at the Toronto Reference Library, go to slate.com slash live for more info. Next, our Slate podcast pick of the week is our beloved Hit Parade, Chris Malenfi's brilliant podcast about the stories behind chart-topping hits. Some of the ones he's done so far include The Week That the Beatles Swept the Entire Billboard Top 5, The Surprising History of UB40's Red Red Wine, that was his very first one, and it was fabulous, even if you hate that song, and The Rise and Fall of the Charity Mega Single, which we've talked a little bit about with Chris on this podcast. One of my favorite episodes, and the one that really made me fall in love with Hit Parade for the first time, was a show about Elton John and George Michael and some parallel developments in, in their careers. So you can listen to Hit Parade on the Culture Gab Fest feed, wherever you get your podcasts. And just by way of personal endorsement, somebody wrote me, I believe this was on Twitter, somebody wrote me saying, yeah, thank you so much for introducing us to Hit Parade through your Gab Fest feed. You have a good podcast, but he has a great podcast. <laughs> and I was happy to be backhandedly complimented. <laughs> That's quite a hard backhand. <laughs> it's like a Federer's backhand drive. Yeah. Yeah, right to the face. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris should be happy, although he loves our show, so maybe he'll have, have some pity and throw us some love. In Slate Plus today, if you have a Slate Plus subscription, you will get to hear us talk about Stephen's recent piece in The Guardian about neoliberalism. So to hear extra segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, which is the membership program for Slate Magazine, where fans of our podcast can help support us. If you like this show and find it valuable, joining Slate Plus is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing these shows. And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of these shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest and the rest of the work we do at Slate, please come to slate.com slash Culture Plus, that's one word, Culture Plus, and join Slate Plus today. Steve, I understand you also have a bit of business before we get back to the show? I do. Thank you, Dana. Very quickly, um, uh, for those of you who know me only as the pompous git on this podcast, you'll be surprised to know that in my other life, um, I uh, enact the part of an even more pompous git. And um, in that capacity, I'm giving a, a lecture or talk at Ohio State University on September 29th, Friday, September 29th. It's it, well, I do sort of know what I'm talking about. It's a grab bag of all of my hobby horses. Uh, uh, I'm talking about um, neoliberalism, which we'll talk about on the Slate Plus thing, and um, and the American experience, like specifically what's a, an American expression of 
this highly abstract uh, concept that appears to be ruling our lives. So anyway, I think it's going to be an interesting and fun talk. So if you want to come, that'd be great. Cool. All right. Well, what do we got next on the show, Stephen? All right, moving on. Rick and Morty follows the adventures of Rick Sanchez, a zany scientist who takes his 14-year-old grandson on insane parallel dimension adventures. I hardly know how to describe it. It's H.P. Lovecraft meets Bob's Burgers meets String Theory meets A Fistful of Peyote. I just don't know. My daughter loves it. I'm starting to love it. Uh, Best thing to do here, I think, is to listen to a clip. You know what? You're going to land on your feet, Jer. Some company out there is going to think they're lucky stars they hired my little brother. Who the f*** are you? My goofy brother, Steve? (laughs) He's been living here almost a year now. Are you losing your mind? Hey, someone's been spending too much time around glowing rocks, am I right? Everybody just relax for a second. There's no such thing as an Uncle Steve. That is an alien parasite. But I've known him my whole life. No, you haven't, Jerry. These telepathic little bastards, they embed themselves in memories, and then they use those to multiply and spread out and take over planets. It's it's disgusting. Steve wasn't real? He's a real piece of shit. This is a big one. Somebody probably tracked it in last week on the bottom of their shoe or on a piece of alien fruit. Someone? Get off the high road, Summer. We all got pink eye because you won't stop texting on the toilet. But Uncle Steve taught me how to ride a bike. No, Steve put that memory in your brain so he could live in your house, eat your food, and multiply. We could be in Infested with these things, so we gotta keep an eye out for any zany, wacky characters that pop up. Ooh, wee! Whatever you want, Rick, we're here to help. Thanks, Mr. Poopy Butthole. I always could count on you. All right, Isaac. As <laughs> That's re- from the episode Total Rickall. So, as the as the resident completist of Rick and Morty, you have to retroactively set up a little bit what was going on in that clip, so people don't just take away, oh, zany stuff happens on the show. Oh, boy. Yeah, so that that's from an episode called Total Recall. Actually, the setup is explained in that clip, which is that there are these memory parasites that are infesting this family with memories that involve uh, wacky, heartwarming adventures, and every time they go to one of these flashbacks, which is fake, they're all fake flashbacks, a new wacky character sort of incepts within it and shows up in their house. That family specifically is an incredibly dysfunctional, codependent one where you have uh, Rick, the grandfather, who's the most brilliant man in the in any universe. But he's also this like horrible sociopathic alcoholic. And then you have his daughter, Beth, also an alcoholic uh, and and a, a veterinary surgeon who specializes in horses. And she's married to a kind of totally useless man named Jerry, played by uh, Chris Parnell from SNL and um Archer and all sorts of other TV shows. And then they have two kids, uh, Summer, who's like a high school popular girl, and Morty, who is a a 14-year-old, kind of very normal, insecure 14-year-old. And and Rick kind of press gangs Morty into being his sidekick for these uh, increasingly traumatizing and violent uh, uh, and surreal adventures throughout space and time. It seems worth noting as well, since we're talking about who's voicing what, that the co-creator of the show, Justin Roiland, does the two main voices, both Rick and Morty, which is sort of stunning when you start looking at the credits because they're wildly different voices and they take up 90 percent of the episode. So I'm just imagining that the taping sessions are going to be really hard on the voice of Justin Roiland, who co-created the show with Dan Harmon of Community. Yeah. And I think Dan Harmon's involvement sort of is is the other big story here. Dan Harmon. I mean, this is very much like Community on 
mm-hmm. hallucinogens and steroids and speed all at the same time, right? I mean, it's playing around with TV <laughs> tropes the way the community did, but in a much more extreme way. It has a very similar kind of uh, every moment sort of has multiple tones going on at once, and you're never sure quite how sincere it's being. And, you know, it has a lot of the same thematic concerns that Harmon is circling in community. Although I actually think Rick and Morty, in part because it's, uh, fewer episodes per season is, is probably more consistent, uh, uh, but certainly mm-hmm. a more extreme version of that vision. Mm. I, 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 Dana, I'm really curious to know whether you liked it. I mean, uh, what was your, had you encountered it before and what was your reaction to it? I hadn't encountered it before. I sort of resist Adult Swim in general. And I think it's because I think that Adult Swim is still at where it was at, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. I don't even know how long that programming block has existed, but I sort of associated with this mid-aughts sort of like jaunty misogyny, you know, like there's always there was always this sort of heavy stream of like cruel, aggressive, often aggressive towards women or maybe homophobic, you know, that sort of strain of like nihilistic boy humor on Adult Swim that kind of put me off. And I have to admit that there are slight glints of that in this show that I see from time to time. I can't get into what they are without, I guess, revealing spoilers, if that means anything for this show. But for example, there's an episode where Morty, who's obsessed with a girl at his school named Jessica, who he's in love with, begs his genius grandfather to create a love potion so she'll fall in love with him. And he does. That ends up backfiring in a hilarious way where the love potion spreads because the love object has the flu. And soon the whole world is erotically obsessed with this 14-year-old nerd named Morty. (laughs) And that's all great. But there's a moment late in that episode where the grandpa, Rick, says something like, I made you your roofie or something like that. There's like this joke about roofing that kind of, you know, brought Mm -hmm. me up short a bit. Um, But these are small complaints in general. I think the show is actually really generous spirited. And the very moment that you think it is taking some sort of turn that's just simply cruel or nihilistic, there's like a glint of humanity that comes out. That said, I couldn't stop watching it. It's really brilliantly written, but there's a there's like an ugliness to the animation and a kind of shock value to, um, you know, there's just a lot of like gross monsters and planets that look like hairy testicles. And you really sort of have to have the stomach for some very fast moving and mean humor. I also kind of got sick of the voice characterization of Rick having to belch all the time. I was always dreading his next mid-dialogue belch. But that said, yeah, more uh, more than I would send people to Ingrid Goes West, the first topic we talked about today, I would send people to Rick and Morty, even if they are resistant to that Adult Swim brand of humor, because there's something more going on there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I so it, it, a couple of different things. One is that um, it, well, the show is brilliant. It's brilliantly written. It it's building on this template, you know, that's now c- c- approaching thirty years old of The Simpsons, as iterated out by The Family Guy up through Bob's Burgers or whatever. And and people want to build on this template of a sort of normal family. Um, somehow iterating out into you know amazingly like weirdly fanciful. Uh, directions upon which you can graft this like setup punchline, setup punchline, setup punchline. It's, it's a delivery system for uh, writers who know how to produce that. Um, and those have pol- proliferated over the last 30 years as this has become a car- standard career path, you know, for young smarty farties um, out in Hollywood. And so it's good. It's going to be good. And there's going to be five more like them if we continue doing this podcast over the next 10 years that we'll be obliged to talk about. And they'll all be really good. And they'll they'll all uh, be sharp. They'll all, they'll all have this kind of edge to them. They'll be generated overwhelmingly by, by uh, boys in writers' rooms. 
Wait, Steven Universe being an exception, one that's generated by a woman, but that I think has something in common with it. Exactly. That was where I was going to go, in fact. So, so I, so as much as this comes out of that tradition, which I really freaking admire, I want to be completely clear. I mean, I love Bob's Burgers. I, it, without trying to do too much or anything too new, uh, they did something kind of wonderful uh, on Bob's Burgers. I admire this. This is brilliant. I see why my daughter loves it. It really isn't for me. Whereas when I watch the other show that she loves, Steven Universe, I feel like I'm watching something that's from a completely different um, genealogy and sensibility in a way. And it, it doesn't feel constrained by this a kind of st- studied and slightly cruel anti-humanist sensibility that then is supposed to make you grateful for the glimpse of humanity or tenderness that comes in right at the end, right? Like it, like Steven Universe actually is humane and, and is humanist and does kind of love the world and the characters in it. Um, whereas this one just, it has a scabrousness that is as, as a, as a, you know, kind of perma boy, who once felt and thought in those terms, I've kind of lost as I've hit middle age. So when I say that it doesn't hit my target, I'm not in any way criticizing it because it is clearly brilliant. I mean, the the kind of weird string theory one where Rick encounters all possible Ricks is fucking genius. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. So I'm not in any way trying to dissuade anyone from watching it. I'm only encountering my own feelings publicly um, about why it no longer connects with someone like me. Does that make sense? Yeah, scabrous is really a good word for that assaultive quality that it has. But I mean, just to give you an idea of how deep the rabbit holes go, that episode you saw about the multiple ricks goes on to, and I'm sure Isaac knows more about this than me, but it goes on to a whole story arc about the different universe of possible ricks interacting with each other, trying to kill each other, fighting with each other, waging war. It's it's a, it's a really incredible breadth of vision. It's amazing. For, yeah. yeah, they're like a sort of united nations of the dimensions, right, that exist to regulate all of the Ricks because in every universe Rick appears, he's the smartest person in it and is also a crazy alcoholic and, you know, all sorts of other things. And so it it, it sort of exists to regulate the Ricks. And then, of course, they're constantly always at war with each other because Rick can't help but be at war with himself. And it is actually, I think, I, I do not think that it is quite as uh, schematic. I actually totally understand your criticism, Stephen. I think this season, the latest season, which is by far the show's darkest and uh, least humanist, it, uh, um, uh, has been more difficult for me to watch than the other two. I think that there is a I think it is less maybe uh, 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 schematic about like, you know, let's get all this darkness and then have the heartwarming beat at the end, although that often does happen because Harmon is obsessed with, you know, story structure and that's a very satisfying beat to have. I think it is also that there is a real wrestling and maybe this is just because I've read a lot of interviews with with Harmon or something, but there is this real wrestling with one's own sort of misanthropy and humanism. And the show tries to contain both of those at the same time and let them wrestle with each other, Mm -hmm. which is what I find really interesting. Mm -hmm. The reason why I would say that Rick and Morty is actually the best of the post-Golden Age Simpsons, Simpsons Simpsons-like TV shows, and in fact better than The Simpsons has been for a long time, is that there's Mm -hmm. often multi-layered density. There's many different things going on often at any one moment, and they don't all agree with each other. They're actually kind of in tension with one another. And I find that very, uh, those contradictions, uh, 
very energizing. And I find that in this show, it's, it's very difficult to keep that from just folding into total in- tonal incoherence. And I think the show does a really mm. good job when it's at its best. There's a couple episodes where it doesn't quite do that, but the, the, the show does a really good job of kind of keeping that aloft. I, I just want to end with a question because I, I'm curious. I don't know the answer and I'd love to hear both of you speak to it. The internally self-referential meta, you know, kind of glass vacuum tube in which a lot of very smart and knowing pop culture takes place. Um, Every now and then, do you feel a little oxygen deprived? I feel as though we're at the end of the possibilities generated by that idea you know, uh, that, that idea that, that something can be made by people whose primary experience is pop culture for people whose primary experience is pop culture. Is that getting, is that getting a little airless for you because it is for, for me? Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I, this to me goes back to our conversation about Billy Eichner, the man on the street show, right? That you and I couldn't stand and Julia finds utterly hilarious. It's a, it's a very different world, obviously, than the world of, of Rick and Morty or any of these cartoon shows we're talking about. But it is kind of both in the satirical loop of mocking our obsession with celebrity and trapping us inside of that that loop. I don't know. What, what, do you, what about you, Isaac? Is that completely tapped out? I think that this show takes it about as far as you can. Right. I mean, you know, that total recall episode, for example, is kind of a parody of the thing. And then they have Keith David as one of the voices in that episode, voicing a character named Reverse Giraffe, who has a tiny neck and arms. And um, uh, uh, but I think they mine it and go about as far into that as is possible. And I hope we start to maybe turn that around and build on other things, but I'm very happy to see them do it. They do also have a quote in an episode that uh, that that explores this, which is, on one of our adventures, Rick and I basically destroyed the whole world. So we bailed on that reality and came to this one, because in this one, the world wasn't destroyed, and in this one, we were dead. So we came here, and we buried ourselves, and we took their place. And every morning, I eat breakfast 20 yards from my own rotting corpse, I'm better than your brother. I'm a version of your brother you can trust when he says, don't run. Nobody exists on purpose. Nobody belongs anywhere. Everybody's going to die. Come watch TV. (laughs) So I guess depending on whether that makes you laugh or sends a deep chill through your being, you can decide whether to see Rick and Morty. Ah, It's meant to do both, right? Um, All right. Great segment. It's Rick and Morty. It's on Adult Swim on the Cartoon Network. We have mixed feelings, which means we want to hear what yours are, facebook.com slash culturefest. Okay, moving on. All right, well, um, uh, th- this next segment, um, it's going to feel at first like we're all on the same peyote that we took in order to understand Rick and Morty. Um, but let me begin by just reading the first paragraph of the article under discussion. The same week that a statue of Robert E. Lee led to the death of an innocent woman in Charlottesville, Virginia, I watched him oink and squeal in a race for the fate of the country. Lee, this time, was a piglet, part of Dolly Parton's Dixie Stampede, a medieval times-style dine-in attraction where seven nights a week and at occasional weekend matinees, the South rises again. Let me welcome to the show Aisha Harris, a close friend of the program. You're a CFOP now, I believe. Uh, that's your current ranking at the Slate Culture <laughs> Gap Fest. Aisha Harris is a contributor to Slate, host of uh, the Slate podcast, Represent. Welcome back to the show. Hi. Thank you. Yes, Dixie. 
Aisha, you're going to have to walk me through this one slowly. I did not know that this restaurant existed. Tell me exactly what it is and what led you there. Well, I didn't either. And I'm a, as I said in the piece, I'm a very casual fan of of, of Dolly Parton. I, you know, love 9 to 5, both the song and the movie. And I enjoy some of her other songs. She's karaokeable. She's karaokeable. And she's also just really like, I just admire her for like all of her, like her business acumen, her, her artistry, her, like her feminism. It's great. Um, but then, <laughs> uh, I was reminded or I was informed of this dinner theater show that she has. Um, and it's just up the road from, uh, Dollywood, which is in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Um, that's quite the name. And uh, it's been running for 30 years, actually. So this is not new. Like, this has been around for 30 years. And were you going to Dollywood anyway or driving no. to that part of the country? Or you made a nope. specific trip to this go? Was, this is a trip because uh, one of our wonderful colleagues at Slate reminded us that this existed. And it felt especially relevant considering the all of the hubbub around the Confederate statues, the monuments coming down, everything happening in Charlottesville, and the fact that this uh, this show in which the conceit is that you, when you buy your ticket, you can choose between the north or the south side, um, and you sit in this giant horseshoe theater. It seats like 1,100 people, um, and you basically get to cheer on for the north or the south side. And and you need to pick a side when you, you buy your ticket. Yes, you have to pick a side. <laughs> um, there's no there's no middle ground. <laughs> there's no neutral. Um, and when you you know it's they have like. It's middle evil times, but there's also like some country fair type of stuff, some uh, a little bit of Cirque du Soleil. Um, there's a pig race. There's lots of races, actually. And you have performers in the middle of the theater who are on either side, so north or south. So each game is like a competition. So there's a pig race. The pigs are named uh, Robert E. Lee and uh, Scarlet, Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, Scarlett O'Hara, and the last one is Ulysses S. Grant, um, the drunken pig. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, and there's other races and there's other competitions, and then there's also this weird, like, weird history of like the settling of the West um, that includes Native Americans in the most weird, condescending in a way way. Uh, so it's a bizarre show. Plus, there's food. Which is served while you watch the yes. show. An yes. entire, what is it, an entire rotisserie chicken? An entire- Some, smoke, some smoked pork loin. Yes. Um, corn on the cob, vegetable soup, and what was the last thing? Oh, a biscuit. Oh, and then you get like a little pastry at the end. This is all for one person, one, per person. You get all of that per person. And since you went to the show twice in one <laughs> night, right? You went, you sat on the Union side I and did. the Confederate side. So you, you ate that meal or at least parts of it twice. Yeah. I mean, I knew going in, I was like, okay, but I can't, I, there's no way I can do this twice in a row. So like I picked at it each time, like enough to like satisfy myself before the next show. And the next show I was like still too full. So I, I definitely did Okay. Not there's so much going on here that I need, I need some sort of visual and auditory cues. What did it look and sound like as you entered and sat down for the show? So in the in the post, we actually put a promo that included um, is little clips of Confederate dressed and Union dressed uh, performers. Some of them <laughs> passing out corn on the cob on your on your plate. But the I, I'm assuming Dolly because it was posted by the Dolly uh, Dixie Stampede original page on the YouTube. They took it down, so we replaced it with this audio um, and visual of. I think it's a different show or it's a show from a couple of years later because it doesn't look quite like the one that I was at, but you can hear a little bit of Dixie in it. 
All right, let's listen to a clip just to get some sense of what the musical atmosphere of the Dixie Stampede is like. really fascinated by that piece uh, and particularly about its ongoing theme of history and forgetting you know about like how we shape our this is one way we shape our history these monuments of course being another one and, and the connections you draw between them but I, I would love for you to talk about since you sat on both sides and you talk about this a bit in the article kind of like what does it mean what does the South actually mean at this event? Or like, what does the North actually mean at this event? Yeah. So I actually asked our lovely waitress, Jan, at the first uh, show I went to. And then the first show, I sat on the North side. And I was like, so like, what does the North and South mean? Like, what what's the point? And she was just like, oh, it's just a friendly competition. It's the costumes. And so like the costumes are, so I should point out that the North and South, while they weren't dressed in the Confederate uniforms, like I saw in that original uh, promo, and that might be at the Branson, Missouri location. There's another location too. I went to the Pigeon Forge one. Um, This one, they weren't wearing full on uniforms, but they were wearing uh, uniforms that were color coded to the North and the South. Uh, of the Civil War. So the the North, they were wearing these like navy blue with a little bit of like yellow and white trim on them outfits. And then the South Side was wearing the uh, red and gray, predominantly gray outfits. So um, and she was just like, it's just friendly competition. And some people really love sitting on the North and some people really love sitting on the South. I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> and so the, the host, there, there's a host of the show and he rides in on horseback. He's wearing the full on like white, very beautifully white uh, cowboy outfit. And he basically lays out the rules towards the beginning. He's like, all right, so the North, you think that the, the South side is like a bunch of like, he uses like some very hokey, like wasn't it flat-headed yeah flat-headed well, interesting narrow-minded came in there which is the closest it seemed to me that anyone even came to alluding to the issue of slavery in the right. entire evening right yeah yeah so like he implored each side to like think of them as like these terrible people <laughs> and then he's like all right there are going to be times when you're going to have to boo the other side and blah 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 and like the kids around me got really into that because like when you're a kid like of course you want to like yeah participate in that stuff um and so but then throughout the night there was this weird like every once in a while the south pretty much won most of the games but like even when they won sometimes they would let the north do a do-over and so like they would they would do a game like the i think they did the pig race twice uh and so they had like actually eight pigs racing as opposed to four uh because there was four for the first race and then they're like oh well we'll give the north another chance and like so then they got another chance and i think they still lost in at least one of the games um It was just weird, this weird competition that, like, doesn't frame it specifically as a civil war, but obviously with the names of the pigs and then the North with the South and the colors and then the Northerners only, Southerners only bathroom stalls, which I was appalled to see. (laughs) Um, It was clearly like it was not just a celebration, quote unquote, of Southern culture. It was a very much because you can't separate Southern culture from the history of slavery. 
I don't think you can. Uh, so it was still there. Like those elements were still it's, there. It's crazy. It's, it's like a totally defanged reenactment of the Civil War. Yeah. Well, here's a question about authenticity. So you say that they're not wearing actual Confederate and Union uniforms. They're wearing these kind of costumes that suggest them. But you also mentioned that one of the contests that happened in both sessions was this flag passing contest where each side is supposed to pass a bunch of flags as quickly as possible to the other side and whoever does it wins. Yeah. Are those actual Confederate and Union flags? No, no. They have like the standard Dixie with the Dixie Stampede logo on it, like just one flag and that each side had the same color flag. And they were also like trying to sell them to everyone. Right. So Uh, there's another gesture of defanging right there, right? Like let's all wave around flags signifying the Civil War, but God forbid they be the actual flags that carry that history with them. Exactly. Yes. Um, And there were hints of like, there is one one moment where they have this Southern Bell number, dance number, where there's just a bunch of women in these Scarlett O'Hara dresses that also like light up like Christmas lights. Um, there's a lot of Christmas lights in this show. Um, they also have a Christmas show, uh, so I'm sure they they use them for both. Um, but while they're dancing, like there's also a screen that's above like the the whole shebang, and it projects different images. Like sometimes it was like horses, and sometimes it was like the Statue of Liberty. Um, but during this number, uh, I remember there being a actual like plantation like a a house that looked like a plantation like up there so right so there's lots of kind of antebellum nostalgia but completely stripped of any racial element whatsoever right so it's just sort of like oh but this is just such a large beautiful house on a beautiful (laughs) plot of land and that's kind of the yeah all right Uh, the other thing that was quite odd to me was how much sort of wild west iconography which i know grows out of the civil war right like the western you know comes out of that but i was very it seemed very weird to me that so much of it was like about cowboys well see to me I mean, granted, then you have that whole other thing with Native Americans and ignoring that. But the photo of which in your article really must be seen to be believed because they look like the the, the black lit Native Americans (laughs) that look like they came from Spencer's. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, No, I just yeah, I feel like had it just been about seeing like a country roadie, like I like country music. I enjoy it. It, you know, rodeos are can be fun. I imagine I've never been to one, but like this is probably the closest I'll ever get to going to a rodeo. Um, but because they threw in the the competition and those Civil War moments, I was like, you can't just pretend that this is just about the Wild West. Like, and that was my problem. And I hope they, I really hope they tweak it so that they just get rid of all that. I mean, it, to me, it seems like, I mean, we're, it's, it's, it's so funny and weird that it's impossible not to talk about it in a kind of comic mode. But I mean, the fact that this is actually sort of the education in what the Civil War was that a lot of kids are having when they go to this yeah. experience is pretty insidious and, and freaky. We've talked around it, so I'll go directly there. I mean, it's what is going on vis-a-vis the Confederate memorials is... And and the character of the protests against their removal has to do with not just the original sin of slavery and the compounded original sin of the Civil War, the secession and the Civil War, and then the triply compounded original sin of remembering the legacy of the Civil War wrong and allowing the side that lost to form its own cultural memory in a way that we never would have let and did not let uh, the Nazis do you know, the Germans do after a uh, total defeat in World War Two, And they right? didn't let so, themselves do. I mean, you know, it's, and, it seems like they did a better right. job at fighting off that kind of nostalgia than we have. Oh, yeah. And and have devoted themselves, uh, um, you know, nose to tail in Germany towards the right kind of cultural memory in order to prevent 
a repeat, right? So is this how to look at this? I mean, is is one way to look at it as a kind of sterilization via kitsch that's so silly that the past becomes meaningless in a way that we can transcend it, which is an optimism I don't feel and I doubt you do too, but just as one possible reaction? Or is it that it's um it's it's really deeply offensive and the wrong kind of historical memory or am I, was that a, not quite the right dialectic is that not what you walked away thinking the choice might be i don't i don't find it i mean save from the native american section which was just really like they they literally said that the native americans were steeped in legend and magic and mystery which is like a whole other long problem uh of of defining and, and understanding what Native Americans are and meant mean to this country, uh, I don't. I don't think it's it's not it's not deeply offensive. It, I, I'm just concerned. I think it's it's. I think it's the former of what you said. I'm concerned because it is just one aspect of many. Like it's a it's a small part of a greater whole of our country. Like making light of the past, and it allow. I think it contributes to allowing people to think of it as something that's that is in the past um and something that is linked to quote unquote herit heritage when it's really not um and i also think that considering that there are so many this is a family show like 90% of the people i saw there were with kids um and i i kind of knowing our public education system <laughs> And and understanding our history books and what we allow our kids to read, uh, I'm concerned that it's 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 just contributing to the continued ignorance of the South to admit that the South the Civil War was about slavery, like it was. Right. I mean, it's a drop <laughs> in the bucket of what's out there, but it's a bad drop in a bad bucket, and it's it's worthy of being exposed to the light. So I'm glad you wrote this. And and I think just going through Dolly and like most of the, I've gotten tons of hate mail you guys can keep sending it i'm not reading it so <laughs> keep writing me those you know five paragraph long uh emails you if you want i'm not reading them but um a lot of the tweets and whatever have been like oh but how dare you attack dolly i mean i, I also cross over into the dolly stands like anytime you have someone who has huge fans you're gonna deal with that um but they're like she's done more good for 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 you for the for the country and for tennessee than you ever will it's like well dolly can both do really great things and also have this really unfortunate show. Right. <laughs> and and I'm not asking her to get rid of it. I'm I, I just think that it should do better. And I think the fact that they took the promo video down shows a sign that maybe hopefully they're reconsidering the show and maybe don't want to name it Dixie anymore. <laughs> right. Um, so we'll see. All right. Well, uh, it's an amazing piece. Uh, people should read it. Dolly Parton's Dixie Stampede, Springtime for the Confederacy, a wonderful allusion to Springtime for Hitler, the song from the producers. Uh, Aisha Harris, thank you so much for coming back on the show and discussing the piece. Thank you. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dan. Ah, what do you have? Steve, my endorsement is, is maybe a little bit more like a cocktail chatter a la Political Gab Fest this week because it's not a thing. In fact, it's the absence of a thing. This is somewhat inspired by having seen Ingrid Goes West and somewhat inspired by a conversation I had the night before. And well, I'll just tell the story. So the endorsement is essentially to find some way to get off social media and away from the news for whatever period of time is useful to you 
in in your life. And I know that sounds like I'm the lifestyle guru, Taylor Sloan, Elizabeth Olsen character, and I in no way have this mastered at all. But I was having a conversation with Love of My Life the other day about just how completely bulldozed we feel by media. He's not even a social media person at all. It's virtually never on it. I, as a lot of my listeners probably know, I'm a sometime Twitter addict, but I take weekend breaks from it. But for whatever reason, I was just feeling like, this is just insane. Like the entire country is becoming the puppet of just this orange clown who tells us every day what we have to talk about and worry about and be scared about and do. And I was just really resentful and angry and exhausted by it. So we were just talking about strategies of how to manage this. And I was saying, I wonder if it would be possible for me to take a whole week off. I mean, I'm a journalist, maybe not a political journalist, but I sort of have to look at the news. Anyway, all of that happened on Sunday. On Monday, I happened to have a very busy day where I had a deadline that I had put off way too long and basically couldn't look at any social media or news and just had to write like a maniac for the first six hours of the day, then run off and see Angry Goes West, various other things. And at the end of the day, I realized, oh, I didn't go online at all today. I didn't look at a single headline. I didn't read the news. I didn't go on Twitter. I didn't do anything. Then I saw this movie that makes Instagram look like some sort of soul-stealing horror. And I figured, let's just keep the trend going. So I got through the whole day and went to bed without having ever done any of that. And I'm not going to say that I was happy and peaceful and calm and radiating waves of contentment on that day, but I got a lot done. <laughs> and uh, And it was sort of nice to just not have to keep up and not know. I mean, granted, the next day I had to get ready for this show and had to consult some of those sources again. So I'm not issuing some sort of Zen directive about how we should all be sitting on cushions and not reading the news. It's really important to be engaged with what's happening in our country right now. But I just suggest that everybody sit down with someone they love and talk about this and think about what kind of management strategy they could come up with to retain, A, their kind of sanity and sense of humor and ability to enjoy life, and B, just their projects that they care about, you know, just find a way to get back to a world where you can get up and work on something that you care about and let instead of letting some orange clown tell you what to do. That's my endorsement. I love it. Um, Isaac, what do you have? Uh, I have two for today. As listeners probably know, the U.S. Open, the fourth uh, of the four tennis Grand Slam tournaments is going on right now here in New York City in Queens. I am a tennis obsessive, as anyone who follows me on Twitter has to suffer through. But even if you are not, I have to recommend it's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, the book Levels of the Game by John McPhee. It's a short book. It's like 160 pages. And it's just about this one tennis match between Arthur Ashe and Chuck Grebner in uh, 1968 at the U.S. Open. And it, it takes this one match and it spirals from there into being about race in America in the 60s, about the transition from tennis being an amateur sport to a professional sport. It gives you a whole biography of Ash up till that point. A lot of it's about Richmond, Virginia, which is uh, much in the news today because of the uh, whole all the Confederate monuments there and is also where my whole family is from. And uh, it's just a and it's on a sentence by sentence level, just gorgeous, like impeccably written book. It started as a series of articles for The New Yorker, as many of McPhee's books uh, do. And it's absolutely wonderful. If you like tennis, if you like uh, David Foster Wallace, who borrowed from it pretty heavily in terms of his thinking about tennis, uh, uh, or just like really great essayistic writing, I just think it's a masterpiece. Levels of the Game by John McPhee. Um, 
my second one I would is a, a book called The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison. This year, after the election, I decided uh, I'm going to give myself permission to read a lot of science fiction again. Something I find a, is a very sort of both comforting and allows me to explore the world in, in, a, in a different way. And for months, people were recommending this book to me and in some perverse way because they were all recommending it. I resisted it. And that was really stupid. It's a really beautifully written uh, 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 book. It's the first in a trilogy. It, and the world ends on the first page and then the book follows three different women um, who are all sort of uh, one of whom is living through that apocalyptic event and the other two timelines are before it. And um, the uh, prose is really beautiful, the way she sort of modulates the point of view strategy for each of those three plot lines and and, and shapes the voice is, is really uh, cunning. And uh, anyone who likes uh, Ursula Le Guin, you know, I think would would dig it. And that's uh, uh, The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison. Oh, wow. Okay, reading list. I love it. Well, I'm going to add to it with something completely obvious, but um, but nonetheless uh, utterly compelling as far as I'm concerned. I now go once a year to uh, a little uh, out-of-the-way uh, town in Maine and stare at the water for one week, um, Sabbathing from uh, modern life completely, watching porpoises and uh, eagles, it's true. Um, but the most, the highlight of it is, uh, in addition to the company, wonderful company, is uh, I read a volume of the Elena Ferrante um Neapolitan books. Uh, I am only on volume two. Last year was the first year I'm, I just read uh, the story of a new name. That's my favorite uh, one. Oh, Isaac, I, I am so heartened to hear you say that. Oh, Absolutely. God, I, I can it. see why. I mean, uh, I can't compare it to the successive ones, but it is, it's just without giving anything away. I mean, the first volume, she does so much work giving you the the limits of the world of young girls growing up in a severely provincial and in some ways ruled by violence and custom of the wrong kind neighborhood. And, and she's built it up so fully and so totally and, and, and gets you so within that worldview that in volume two, she starts to break the worldliness of the adults that they're the consciousness of the worldly adults that they're going to become starts to break into their world in these poignant ways that are both so hopeful and so heartbreaking and, and it's just so it, it's tenderly beautifully realized it is it is shaping up to be one of the greatest works of literature i think i've ever read i mean one says says this hesitantly about something um, whose author is still alive. I'm I'm a firm believer in the author uh, author's death plus fifty years before you begin <laughs> to make these huge sweeping historical generalizations about their greatness. Fuck that. I don't care. Elena Ferrante is a goddamn genius. Um, <laughs> and by the way, Julia Turner, she utterly deserved her total anonymity. Um, but um, I I I mean, if for some reason these books have escaped your bedside table, you're 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 really really doing yourself an enormous disservice they easily go down as as the two two of the best books i've ever read and and together the arc that she seems to be piecing together is so extraordinary i can only imagine where it's going to go next elena ferrante get your ass to elena ferrante if it hasn't gone there already <laughs> this is and then, sort of a little bit john swansburg's cheers endorsement territory because you probably have two listeners who don't already know these books are great but i still love the passion of your endorsement and i love that you're saving them for your vacations i want to i want to take oh, some man. ownership of that because of my whole moby dick in the summer's only strategy yes. that finally got me through that book but something Absolutely. about saving great literature vac- for vacation that's that's worthy of endorsing in itself i totally agree oh. 
And uh, let me just quickly say, I only just discovered a Swedish indie pop band. You can't find them on Spotify. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently they're not even on iTunes, but I love them. And I want anyone out there who knows them to tell me why they're so fucking hard to track down. They're called either Eggstone or... (laughs) I wish Jody Rosen were here right now. (laughs) It's either Eggstone. It's one word. E G G S T O N E, so it's eggs tone. But either it's a, it's kind of like eggs tone. Is it or a stone, stone made of an egg, or is it the tone of go. eggs? Thank you, Dan. <laughs> yes, duck bunny, duck bunny. I don't know. Anyway, it's a it's a Wittgensteinian riddle, but they're also a fucking <laughs> awesome Swedish pop band. Go ahead, have at me. I am the fool uh, uh, that you thought I was. Um, every Steve in every alternate universe loves Swedish yes, pop bands. Yes, converged into one and coughed up this furball of an endorsement. I don't care. I fucking love their music. Tell me all about them if you know anything about them. Dana, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Isaac, you are c- c- you're close to achieving supreme friend of the program or SFOP <laughs> status. Uh, a total pleasure to have you uh, back on. Thank you so much, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He's our Rick Sanchez. The Culture Gabfest is part of the Panoply Network. There's an entire roster of really great shows at uh, panoply.fm. You should definitely check them out. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Isaac Butler and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.